You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. The San Francisco 49ers are currently sitting atop the NFC West with an undefeated 7-0 record, but that winning game plan extends to off the field as well. The team announced a new all-inclusive food and beverage program for their season ticket holders that rolls out next season. I spoke with the 49ers president, Al Guido, this week on why they're launching this new initiative and how this season is going. We're excited because no one's ever done it at this scale. A lot of stadiums or ballparks, arenas have always had sort of all-inclusive for the most premium seats in the building. And we felt like if you're in the upper deck sitting in the last row, why shouldn't you have the same benefit that those folks have? So for us, we're lucky in the sense of we have tremendous fans. They call themselves the faithful for a reason. Over the first six years in our building, they've renewed at 97 and 98%. So we have one of the largest capacities of season ticket holders relative to total attendance. So a little bit easier for us to do than maybe teams that have more turnover. And so we're going to do it for 60,000 fans. So you literally can walk up, grab as many hot dogs as you like, grab as many soft drinks as you like, and go back to your seats. We felt it was important to give that benefit. And now with technology, we're able to pull it off. All right, I have to make a full disclosure here. I married into a 49ers family, so I can think of at least four people who will be thrilled by this. I love it. Give me the exceptions, and when does this start? So it starts next football season. We'll we'll roll it out. And the only exception really is if you're not a season ticket member, then you have to pay. Mm -hmm. And so I think about it like one might think about uh, airports or TSA pre-check, right? I mean, people who fly frequently probably have TSA pre-check. And on your mobile device, it literally just shows TSA pre and you actually visually show that to a guest service representative and they let you in the line. And so if you think about it in those regards, our fans, our season ticket members for years, right? They want good performance on the field. Yes, they're getting that. Certainly they're price sensitive, but value at the concession stands is something they've always felt like, hey, why does a hot dog in a restaurant cost Mm -hmm. me four or $5 and all of a sudden now it costs me so much more in a stadium? It feels like gouging. And for, for us it became, we needed to have it at good value, but then also speed of throughput. We don't want people standing in long queuing lines as they're trying to get back to watch on the field. And so for us, only going to happen for season ticket members if you buy on the secondary market. 
All you have to do is pay at the concession stands. You still get the same pricing and everything else. You just have to go through the purchase. Okay, so this is actually part of a larger trend to make food and beverage more fan-friendly, more affordable. Arthur Blank's Atlanta Falcons did it a couple of years ago at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and they've since dropped prices as well. Why exactly does this work? Are your food and beverage costs coming down as well? Our COGS are generally going up for the most part because I think Arthur Blank and Steve Cannon did a really good job. They literally looked at the masters. I was working for Arthur Blank as part of my old consulting business. And Arthur Blank would go to the masters and he would say, wow, what a great experience this is. And you pay $2 for a hot dog or a drink. And, and so why can't we do that in an NFL stadium? And if you think about our sort of P&L and the revenue streams, food and beverage is such a small line item. Frankly, it should be viewed as a benefit. Interesting. And so the Bay Area, given our sort of diverse background, all, the, all of our fans, the quality in the foods or the, the amount of menu offerings that we have are a lot more than most other stadiums. So we needed to include as many menu offerings as we possibly could. Mm-hmm. But our quality of food service won't necessarily go down or our cogs won't go down. Honestly, the only thing that might go down is labor costs. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, it's a lot of automated things. So if I, I would go fill my food and beverage drink at a kiosk now because I can just go up to it, our labor costs might change. Okay, so we go back to data, we go back to technology, and of course the 49ers front office has been out front when it comes to its use of data and analytics. Uh, You're gathering data, you're interpreting data, you're leveraging it constantly to streamline your operations, make it more efficient. Share some of the surprising insights that your data has given you about how customers spend money on game day. Aside from food and beverage, how else are they spending? Sure, well obviously at the food and beverage stands they're definitely spending on game day, and then they're also spending in the retail space. Spaces. And so our retail right now, we're, as Fanatic Shop, we're one of the top in the NFL for New Jersey. He's obviously our quarterback, some of our defensive players. But what we found in the food and beverage is it also um, it's dictating when fans come into the game. Because oh. if prices have started to soar, most people stay, stay out in the parking lot as long as they possibly can, which impacts sort of fan experience once the game begins. And everyone's taking these photos around NFL stadiums, around, oh, look at the empty seats. And I think a lot of that is, look, it's a lot cheaper for me to grill at my tailgate and maybe for me to drink my final beer before I walk in than it is in the stadium. And so I think as part of this, hopefully what we'll find is the trend now because safety and security is such a big thing. We need people starting to come into the stadium much earlier to be in there for kickoff. And if we can remove that friction point mm-hmm. around the buying aspect and make it more affordable on the food and beverage side, then I think more people will come into these venues earlier, which is much better for us. All right. So I, I see how this all comes together now. Timing wise, this announcement uh, comes as the 49ers have started off the season 6-0, and thanks to an incredible defense, I think, of Nick Bosa. Um, how much of a boost does the undefeated record give your season ticket sales or individual ticket sales for that matter? A massive boost on the individual ticket sales. There's no question. If you look at all of our our metrics, our ratings in our local market are up 32%. Our retail price, our retail shopping is up. Our tickets right now, I think we did over $100,000 just last night in individual ticket sales for our games. We're seeing a tremendous following, frankly, not just at home. Mm-hmm. On the road, when we play the LA Rams, you know, Scott Van Pelt on ESPN is one of his one big thing, really did an entire segment on the faithful and how they showed up in the LA stadium. We're unbelievably blessed to have one of the biggest fan bases in the National Football League. We have season ticket holders in every single state. Um, We have over 10 million fans following us on our social channels. 30% of our customers that are in Levi Stadium on any given game day have never been there before. Interesting. And so we feel as though our performance the first couple years in the building has not been great. Last year we lost our quarterback to an injury. 
having him back now with yeah. all the defensive players has really propelled us both on the business side and on the football side. All right, so you're 6-0. The Patriots are also undefeated at 7-0. Are we looking at the Patriots versus the 49ers in the Super Bowl? I try not to get too ahead of ourselves because last, last year it was like we were looking really good and all of a sudden our guy tears his ACL and it's a tough season. The NFL is such a week-to-week business. Every game matters so much. This yeah. week we got the Carolina Panthers coming into town. Christian McCaffrey was a Stanford grad. So there's a lot of people that want to come see him. There's a reason why in the NFL there's more teams that go from worst to first. And we're right now we're one of those, right? Um, 50% of the teams who make the playoffs don't make it the next year. And so even though we won our first six games, what we're really excited about is we still have six home games left on yeah. our schedule. So we've won a lot of road games to start the year. If we sort of protect our turf, as they say, um, obviously we think we can be a playoff team. And then once you get into the quote-unquote dance, anything can happen. Then we spoke with Alberto Ramos. He is head of Latin America Economic Research at Goldman Sachs. This before the Argentine election results about what the results would mean for Argentina. We also discussed the massive growing protests in Chile that forced Chilean President Sebastián Piñera to cancel APEC. We began by asking Alberto how fast the eventual election winner, Alberto Fernández, would need to make his economic plans clear to the Argentine people as well as global investors. I would say very quickly, uh, sentiment is very fragile, the economy is very weak. Uh, as JP was reporting, the macro picture is pretty ugly. You talk about very high inflation, above 50%, very high level of interest rates, very close to 70%. Uh, a deep recession that's going to enter into the third year. They have no access to voluntary funding markets and they have a very distant and estranged relationship with their lender of last resort, the IMF. <laughs> uh, sentiment again is very fragile. People are running on the banks, they are withdrawing uh, their dollar deposits, reserves are declining. So. So the onus is now on the next administration, assuming that is Alberto Fernandez, to very quickly, out of the bat, you know, present a very coherent economic plan to turn around the situation. Oddly enough, like a good antibiotic, some policies need to be in place for a certain period of time until you see the effects. Like the antibiotic, you need it to take it for 10 consecutive days. The economy was moving in the right direction. The external accounts were adjusting. The current account deficit is no longer you know, as wide as what it used to be. Uh, market deliver, you know, a good chunk of the needed fiscal adjustment. Monetary policy was tight, but inflation was starting to finally come down. It's precisely the fear that these policies will not be in place after the election, that there will be no continuity that led to the deterioration of the market sentiment and uh, aggravation of the macro picture we have seen. Does the IMF or whoever whoever else need to start rethinking the general playbook for helping a country get out of distress? Because even if on paper you could say, look, you need fiscal adjustment, you need pension reform, you need structural reform, privatizations, tighter monetary policy, they're never popular these things. And, and politics is real, and it becomes very difficult to avoid politics, and you can only go so far before you see a real reaction, whether in the polls or sometimes in the streets. And does that need to be taken account more the next time, whether it's Argentina or someone else, is in this situation? It does, Joe. I'm not sure what is the alternative, right? In a way, you know, uh, you look at the policies and they did have a large fiscal imbalance, large fiscal needs. They did not have a way to fund it. That's why they need, you know, eventually to go and negotiate an IMF program. I think, you know, fiscal adjustment was a must. They needed to run tight monetary policy in order to bring inflation down. They need the currency to reach a competitive level. Uh, It's a question of governability and the capacity of the local authorities to deliver the program. But sometimes the situation is so fragile and so weak that sometimes 
sometimes it's too late to rescue in a in a somewhat smooth way, and yeah. that's what happened in Argentina. Like you know, I don't think the IMF program was necessarily badly designed. I don't think there is an alternative set of policies mm. that could have delivered better results. And what happened to Argentina was not an economic shock; was a political shock. Right. It was after the primaries, people started to fear a significant right. shift in right. policy towards more interventionist, heterodox, populist, whatever you like to label them. Okay, so for existing investors, I mean, there's going to be a debt restructuring of yeah. some sort. Yeah. <clears throat> what, what's most palatable for Fernandez, or assuming that he gets in office. I mean, what do you think that he can work out that's sure. going to be... Uh, what's more palatable to him is also what is more palatable to, to investors. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a way that solves that fundamental problem. You know, we can, they can talk about the reprofiling, restructuring, default. You know, you can choose whatever semantical expression, you know, right. better expresses that. But in the end, they need probably some sort of debt relief. But that is also a function of the fiscal effort that they are able to deliver over the long haul, right, mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, it doesn't really help if it is just a light restructuring and two to three years down the road right. you have to do it again. So it has to be in a way where all... You know, the stakeholders are at the same table, and the IMF is one of them, in a way that they commit in a credible way to a certain fiscal path, and under that fiscal commitment, you know, you, you know, work out as a result what type of debt relief that they need. I'm not so sure that just maturity extension, as the authorities have been talking about, I'm sorry, not the authorities, but Anibal Fernandez, the mm -hmm. presidential candidate, and an eventual reduction in coupons will be enough if they don't deliver a significant fiscal effort. All right. We've seen the protests in Chile, which obviously are about much broader issues than just fare hikes and uh, some of the day-to-day uh, -day pay issues. We're also seeing protests in other parts of Latin America, Ecuador as well. I'm wondering when you see uh, these types of outbursts by the public towards policies that have largely been well-received by markets, but not necessarily benefit or the perception is they haven't benefited the people on the ground, the middle and lower classes. How does that get reconciled here? Because it's hard to see how you sort of balance these two. You don't out. see the dividends of yeah. you know, somewhat disciplined yeah. policy making. I think you raise a very, a, very, a very interesting point. Like when you look at Chile, I think in general, you know, particularly in Latin, we live in an age of diminished expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, every real GDP growth for this year is probably at around 0 0.5. You mm -hmm. know, that speaks a little bit about the trouble and you know, the angst that is out there. Uh, we, in Chile in particular, they are looking at low wages, you know, low pensions, low growth. Uh, they are looking at a political system in which they don't feel, you know, represented. They are staring at uh, income and uh, wealth inequality. They are witnessing corruption scandals. So this, all this angst that is real, again, you mentioned, is not just because of a four cent increase in subway fares that right. triggered all this violent outburst. So now it's incumbent on the authorities, you know, to deliver an answer to those, you know, those anxieties of, uh, of the average voter, but in a way uh, that where you avoid shortcuts or short-sighted populist policies, in a way you have to address those shortcomings in a fiscally responsible way and in a way that does not undermine the incentives for investment in the economy, okay. because only through investment that you create growth, wages and opportunity and social enfranchisement down the road. So it's important to, you know, uh, understand that this is real, there is some real pain out there. It's important that the political class finds a way to address that, and that's a shared responsibility from, you know, the government and the polit broad political class Congress as well, but in a without compromising macro stability, because if you compromise macro stability down the road, you're also compromising political and social stability. So for years, I'd always read about how great the Chilean pension system is, and it should be this model for the rest of the world and so forth, and Chile is still a relatively wealthy country, it's done well. You know, it's, it's one thing to have these protests on the street and then leaders need to recognize that they need to do something about inclusion and inequality. 
Are there earlier warning signals or is so that it doesn't have to come to this that people should be paying attention to? Sure. I mean, you're absolutely right. When, we, when you look at the real GDP per capita yeah. and even pension payments, uh, you know, the system delivered something. Like in Brazil, the pension right. system is basically bankrupt. It was just reformed uh, this, this week. Yeah. So in a certain sense, it delivers something. It's not perfect. It's being you know, uh, perfected at the margins. Some people did not contribute enough, and now pensions are way too low. They are creating what they call a solidarity pillar in which the state makes a contribution so mm -hmm. that you know, there is a floor in terms of the minimum, you know, the minimum pension that you're entitled or goes beyond your you know, life, life contributions. Right. Yeah, I mean, the social stability is, is a public good. Right? You, know, you need to be mindful of that. Uh, but in a way, I think you know, those issues can, cannot be addressed by decree. And the only right. way to address them is to create an environment that attracts investment and generates growth. And I go back to my original remarks. You're living in an age of diminished expectations. Yeah. Real GDP, even in Chile, is now tracking between 2 and 3%. It used to be 6 to 8 so it's a different reality. You have yeah. to reinvent themselves in a way and provide a segue to, you know, to the anxiety that has been expressed in a violent way on the streets. Right? Has there been a violent view expressed by investors, particularly in the emerging markets? People tend to try to broad-base the emerging markets and not look at it as idiosyncratic countries, right. but be in or out, and therefore everyone looks at the dollar. But how much have we seen people pull back from Latin America in general because of suddenly right. this this rise in, in protest? Mean, emerging markets used to be a synonym of high growth and high yields, you know, and particularly now with central banks cutting aggressively and growth decelerating. We have neither. So that changed a little bit like the investment thesis in terms of exposure to risk in LATAM in Lat or emerging markets, you know, broadly. Uh, it's still an opportunity, offers, you know, the diversified benefits, getting some exposure to emerging markets. But we have to acknowledge that the reality is a completely different one. Commodity prices, particularly in LATAM, are no longer supporting and leveraging the growth cycle. Growth has decelerated. Uh, we see signs of political and social instability in many other countries, you know, from Argentina to Brazil uh, to Peru, uh, Ecuador, Bolivia. So it seems to be a more widespread phenomena where uh, voters, again, don't feel represented by the traditional political structures. And we saw significant shifts in political regimes in Mexico with elections from yeah. center-right to center-left, in Brazil as well, in this case, from center-left to center-right. So, I mean, you brought up the commodity space, but, I mean, uh, uh, the collapse that we've seen in commodity prices this year obviously has played a part in this. The strength of the dollar has obviously played a part in this. And all this still ties back in to the global growth story. So if we do get a reacceleration in growth next year, maybe late next year, as some people are predicting, does that, could that be enough to sort of absolve some of the ills that are playing? Well, sure, it's enough, but certainly yeah. helps, right? Yeah. You know, LATAM uh, traditionally has found it quite difficult to grow at acceptable rates, bearing very favorable external, external conditions. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean cheap and abundant liquidity and high commodity prices. Right. Outside those periods, you know, it's traditionally been a region that is not trading enough, is not investing enough. Productivity growth is still, you know, rel relatively limited. Mm -hmm. So we need those external tailwinds in order to leverage the cycle. Right now, it's not the worst of the worlds you can imagine, but mm -hmm. it used to be a lot more supportive a few years ago. So that's why you have to re-engineer, you know, make these economies a little bit more flexible. And that's why in so many parts, I know it's like a buzzword, but they, they need to reform. You know, reforms are important. The region does not trade enough, and that's a key issue. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. 
Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. And we wrap things up with the ultimate subtweet. In a blatant swipe at Facebook just hours before they released earnings, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey announced that Twitter was banning all political ads. But like all the quarters before, Facebook continued to post strong earnings despite the controversy surrounding it. The social media giant delivered better than expected third quarter sales and steady user growth, even in regions like North America, where it had looked like the market might be close to saturation. Caroline spoke about the results with Facebook's COO, Sheryl Sandberg, in an exclusive interview. I think the driver is that we are building products that people want to use all over the world. As you said, we have now 2.8 billion people, about 2.8 billion using our family of apps and everything's growing. Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp. And importantly, the Facebook core app is growing, including in the United States. Globally, we have a 9% growth to report year over year this quarter in people that are coming to Facebook monthly using it daily. And that's pretty exciting because what that means is that this is a product that continues to help people connect, continues to help people share, and that people use as part of their daily lives all over the world. And to connect, to understand, to learn. And you both, Mark and yourself, just spoke very passionately about growth, but also the focus on protection of the user at the moment, particularly when it's all boiled together with election manipulation and transparency. I know this is something you're working particularly hard on at the moment in terms of employing people, educating. Talk to us about the decision of not blocking political ads. This is something that Mark spoke very passionately about, expecting a very tough year ahead on this decision. How hard is it to make such controversial decisions? This is a controversial decision. As Mark just said on our earnings call, we're not doing it because of the money. This is less than 1% of our revenue, and the revenue is not worth the controversy. But what Mark said is that we believe in free expression, we believe in political speech, and ads can be an important part of that. Where we're really focused, and I think we are leading, is on transparency. We put out an ad library. We now announced a presidential ads tracker, which means that you can see any ad anyone is running who's a political candidate anywhere in the U.S., anywhere in the world even, if it's not targeted at you. And that kind of transparency we think is really important to people understanding. You also talked about investing, investing in protection. One of the things we talked about on our earnings call just now is the size of the investments we're making, prepared for 2020, working with election commissions all over the world, hiring engineers, using machine, using human reviewers, really doing what we can to make sure people are kept safe. So when Twitter decides to go the opposite direction, does that make you question your own decision or you still stand by the fundamental reasoning and transparency that you can bring? Well, Mark has said on the call that, you know, we've thought about this for years and certainly we've been thinking about it now. And we fundamentally believe that political ads are an important part of the dialogue and can be important against incumbents, can be important for new views. Mm. But we also believe that free expression across the board is something that we stand for as a company. And people all over the world are using that. Certainly politicians are using that. But people are using it, and that's how you see that's how you see our growth continuing. Let's talk more a little bit about politicians because it's going to be a tough year in terms of regulatory scrutiny. Do you worry about talk of the business model being under attack? How do you see your role in educating, particularly those on Capitol Hill, about this? 
Well, I think we really have to help people understand that targeted ads and privacy are not at odds. We can do both. So if you're an advertiser, you're the biggest company in the world or the smallest company. And we have 7 million advertisers, 140 million businesses using our services. And you want to show an ad to, you know, women uh, in their 50s, that's me, who live in California, we take the ad, we show it to that person, we give you back aggregated results. We can do very good ads targeting that really makes ads good for people and really helps advertisers reach the right person without violating privacy. And that's something I think we need to do a much better job of explaining. And indeed, the integration that you're doing at the moment, you talk about the focus on the family of apps, whether it be, of course, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. You're also looking to put them together in the back end, encrypt them. Do you think this is going to help in terms of ensuring that you do remain one whole business? Well, that's not where this is coming from. We were doing that before. What we really want to do is use common infrastructure mm. so that we can help build our services, but also make sure the services provide their own unique experiences. Mark talked about this on the call as, you know, one of the things that happened as Instagram was growing is that Instagram's growth is explained by, you know, Kevin and Mike's really amazing product leadership, but also by what Facebook brought in terms of infrastructure, in terms of ads. And we want to continue to do that, support the apps we have in our family, make sure they have what they need to do to continue to serve people around the world. And support them through commerce as well. Businesses, I know, are hugely important to you. It's not just about the individual, the, the connecting with your family, it's connecting with business. How are you seeing commerce eventually playing, particularly on the Instagram front? So I think people are excited about commerce, excited about IG shopping, which is still very early and nascent. What we are is a great platform for people to find things. People discover products they want, services they want. We have done less going all the way down the funnel to where people actually buy and purchase. And those are more nascent, ex ex more nascent products for us, but we're working on them. And we continue to see our role to help people connect. Businesses are using it not just to sell, but increasingly to message. One of the coolest things that's happening on the platform is how many businesses are connecting to people directly mm. on Messenger and WhatsApp. It's pretty cool for a person to have the opportunity to message a business directly and a business to have the opportunity to do that with people. Is the Libra project important to the commerce part of the business? Are you still fully committed to that project as it stands? Well, we're definitely committed to it. And as Mark said when he testified, we're not going to roll this out until we have regulatory approval. Most of the commerce efforts have really nothing to do with Libra. That's a separate thing and it's a separate association. Our commerce efforts are things on our own services to help you go all the way from seeing a product you might like to checking out to buying it on our service. And you referenced at the start that we're going to be getting together next week, and I can't wait for it. November the 7th, we're going to be looking at the year ahead right here at Bloomberg with you. Talk to us about 2020, about the most op the optimism you have and some of the opportunities and maybe obstacles and challenges that you're going to be facing. Well, it's very clear that 2020 is going to be a challenging year for us, for a lot of the tech companies, for anyone who's working in the space of expression. But I think the thing we feel best about is if you looked back at 2016, and you looked at what happened in the election where we were not prepared for this new coordinated inauthentic behavior, we're in a very different place now. In 2017, we took down one network that was doing that. In the last year alone, we took down 50, including three today, which were Russia aimed at other countries. We took down four last week. 
Russia. One of those was Russia aimed at our country. And so we are working hard. We have great working relationships with the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI task force. We head into this election in a completely different place than we were. That doesn't mean we'll catch everything. That doesn't mean we'll get it perfect. But it does mean that we are prepared in a different way and working with people around the world to protect elections. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.